Hear the word of God from Luke's gospel, starting with chapter 11, verse 33. No one lights a lamp and then hides it or puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where its light can be seen by all who enter the house. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when, you, but when it is unhealthy, your body is filled with darkness. Make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. If you are filled with light, no, with no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant, as though a floodlight were filling you with light. As Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. Then the Lord said to him, You Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Fools, didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor, and then you will be clean all over. What sorrow awaits you Pharisees, for you are careful to tithe even in the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. What sorrow awaits you Pharisees, for you love to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplaces. Yes, what sorrow awaits you. For you are like hidden graves in the field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption they are stepping on. Teacher, said an expert in religious law, you have insulted us too in what you just said. Yes, said Jesus. What sorrow also awaits you experts in religious law, for you crush people with unbearable religious demands, and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. What sorrow awaits you, for you build monuments for the prophets your own ancestors killed long ago, but in fact you stand as witnesses who agree with what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you join in their crime by building the monuments. This is what God in his wisdom said about you. I will send prophets and apostles to them, but they will kill some and persecute the others. As a result, this generation will be held responsible for the murder of all God's prophets from the creation of the world, from the murder of Abel to the murder of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, it will certainly be charged against this generation. What sorrow awaits you, experts in religious law? For you remove the key to knowledge from the people. You don't enter the kingdom yourselves, and you prevent others from entering. As Jesus was leaving, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees became hostile and tried to provoke him with many questions. They wanted to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Meanwhile, the crowds grew until thousands were milling about and stepping on each other. Jesus turned first to his disciples and warned them, Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy. The time is coming when everything that is covered up will be revealed, and all that is secret will be made known to you all. Whatever you have said in dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the housetops for all to hear. 
Dear friends, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot do anything more to you after that. But I'll tell you whom to fear. Fear God, who has the power to kill you and then throw you into hell. Yes, he's the one to fear. What is the price of five sparrows? Two copper coins? Yet God does not forget a single one of them. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. I tell you the truth. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, the Son of Man will also acknowledge in the presence of God's angels. But anyone who denies me here on earth will be denied before God's angels. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when you are brought to trial in the synagogues and before rulers and authorities, don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Mark. Whew. Tough passage, huh? There's a lot in that passage. Uh, we're going to unpack it a little bit and trust God with it and thank him for the opportunity that we have to come every Sunday and, and worship him and, and hear from the word and, and let his word teach us. Today, good morning, I'm Danny. I'm one of the pastors here I, at Waypoint. Our other two pastors are actually out of town for various reasons, family trips. And uh, we're in a sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. And today is Palm Sunday. And the kids are actually going to come in at the end and help us celebrate. So that'll be, that'll be fun. But uh, normally on Palm Sunday, if we're in Luke's Gospel, we would jump ahead to Luke 19 and 20, where Jesus actually enters Jerusalem. We teach on this every year. Uh, but as we're working our way through Luke's Gospel, we decided to continue where we are in Luke's account. And there's, 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 there's a method and a reason for this. On Good Friday and next Sunday during Easter, we'll, we will skip ahead to the corresponding passages in Luke. But for today, we want to focus on, on this long journey that Jesus is taking into Jerusalem as his light is breaking through the darkness. So I would say even today's sermon is part of the Palm Sundays. It's, it's part of this journey that Luke's bringing us on as Jesus is, is bringing light to all these dark places as he's entering into Jerusalem. Um, we just heard a long passage filled with rebuke and encouragement from Jesus. There are a lot of statements in the passage that are difficult to, for us to interpret as modern readers. I chose to use the New Living Translation, which is the translation that probably puts it in the most common English so that we could catch some of the idioms and the Greek and Hebrew uh, idioms that Jesus was referring to. So I hope that was helpful. But even in that, I'm sure that some of you are like, wow, that was an interesting statement. I need to unpack that a little bit. That was an interesting statement. I need to unpack that a little bit. This, Because this is Jesus talking. So there's, there's just a lot packed into this section. Um, but there's also encouragement from Jesus. So there's the stuff that might seem discouraging. But there's also encouragement from Jesus. And I want us today to focus on the encouragement. That's the way the Gospels are presented. Jesus has to present the darkness so that he can, he has to present the problem so he can show why we need him as the solution. For this morning, I want us to see 
pun intended, four truths from this passage, uh, straight from the mouth of Jesus. The first one is seeing the light, receiving the light, living in the light, and being light. I'm going to read the passage again, the first part. No one lights a lamp and then hides it or puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where its light can be seen by all those who enter the house. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when it is unhealthy, your body is filled with darkness. And these are, you know, this is written 2,000 years ago. They didn't understand all the medical technologies that we understand now about eyes and how they work. But they understood that the older you got, you started losing your eyesight. They understood what blindness was. And, and Jesus is using this example. And I, I think it's, it's really important to think about this. And what would it mean to have spiritual healthy eyes? He goes on, he says, but uh, make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. If you're filled with light, no dark corners, with no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant, as though a floodlight were filling you with light. You guys know I love props, so. <laughs> so, this is a small light. You know, there's the exit lights and this light in the back, so it's not pitch black in here. But, you know, this small light, if it was really dark, this light would be the only thing we could see in here. And Jesus, some translations say bowl, some say basket, but I didn't want to do a basket because I didn't want to catch on fire. But, well, it went out in my demonstration. There you go. You just put it on top and it goes out. But I love the idea that when we're filled with the light, when our eyes can see Jesus, it's like a radiant, like a floodlight. And randomly at the church, we had these floodlights. They've been sitting in a box for like years. And I'm like, what are we going to do with these things? So I thought, they're really hot. Wow. All right. So there's some floodlights. Um, if you want the radiant light, first you have to see the light, recognize it, and recognize you need the light. Then you, so you have to see it and recognize it. Say, I need this. Then you have to receive it with healthy eyes. It's funny, I've always had really good eyesight and I still can see pretty good far away, but now I can't, like I can't see my phone, like, like I have to pull it back. Like I can't see it right there. Like I have to make the text bigger. It's kind of funny how, you know, I hit about 45 and just started happening. <sighs> Amen. There's a lot of amens out there. So for you younger folks, it's weird. Like one day you're like, wow, like you're doing this thing, trombone kind of thing. Uh, but you, you have to recognize, you have to receive the light with healthy eyes. And God restores our eyes and gives us, I'm going to turn these off because they're really bright. And I don't want to catch on fire or anything. So let me, uh, where's the, Woo. they get hot quick. This, this is what a radiant light is. So then you can live in the light and then you can be that radiant light. That's like a floodlight because you're filled with the light. So that's the first truth. We got to see it. The second truth is receiving the light. 
New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this, when the light comes, it scatters the darkness. But what if you were rather enjoying the darkness, able to get on unseen with whatever evil purposes you had? Light brings hope and new possibilities, but it also brings judgment. Light symbolizes new life in the face of darkness, in the darkness of death, but it also shows the darkness for what it is. These sayings, then, are full of hope. They are also filled with warnings of judgment. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's constantly saying in one way or another that God's light will shine out and expose the darkness that had taken hold of the hearts and the minds of his contemporaries. We need to recognize the darkness is all around us. But we also need to recognize it's inside of us too. When you start pointing your fingers at others, you forget that you're just as capable of these things. And these passages of Jesus help us put all of it in perspective. On Palm Sunday, we're called to cry out, Hosanna. Hosanna literally means, please save us, or we, we are praying, will you save us? Might be another way to translate it. But that acknowledges those people who saw Jesus entering Jerusalem, that they actually knew that they needed to be saved from something. They knew that there was a darkness, and they wanted to move toward this light. Now at Palm Sunday, we'll, we can acknowledge that a lot of them wanted to just be saved from the Roman Empire. They just wanted to be saved from the oppression, and Jesus came to save them from that. But Jesus came to save them from so much more. And as he unfolds his kingdom and his teachings, we get to see this unpacked more and more. In John 1, verses 9 through 12, John says this. This is how we receive the light. The true light, talking about Jesus, that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of of God. So the second truth is we have to receive the light. We have to acknowledge it and then we have to receive it. And then when we received it, we have to live in it. And we're going to hone in on this for a little while this morning. A few chapters earlier in Luke, he shares another account where Jesus talks about light using a similar, actually almost the same example. This is Luke chapter 8. This one sounds almost just like what we just read in Luke chapter 11. No one lights a lamp, then covers it up with a bowl or hides it under a bed. A lamp is placed on a stand where its light can be seen by all who enter the house. For all that is secret will eventually be brought into the open and everything that is concealed will be brought to the light and made known to all. And now without, I'm gonna stop here, go back to that one. This might sound scary that everything inside of you might be known to all. And it doesn't mean that you got to go tell everybody all your dark darkness inside of you, all, all your fears and things you've thought. But this does mean 
that to God, it's already known. And that's a good thing. God knows you. He sees all the darkness. He sees all the brokenness. He sees all the hurt. He sees all the pain. And he loves you. And not only did he love you, he came into the darkness to save you. That's good news. God sees everything. The closer you get to the light, the more you can see all the imperfections. And God just shines the light on us, sees the imperfections, and is like, I'm going to make you clean. And part of that process is us recognizing that we can't clean ourselves, that God does it. He goes on in the passage, verse 18, so pay attention to how you hear. Notice he talked about seeing, now he's talking about hearing. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. But for those who are not listening, even when they think they understand, it will be taken away from them. And I don't have time to unpack all this, but I wanted to show you that this is the second time that Luke points out that Jesus gives us this example about a light and a lamp and what light does. Light exposes, but it also gives the opportunity to see things as they really are. And God sees us as we really are, and he loves us, and he wants to recreate us into a new humanity. People who can really love God and love others. And that's good news. So how do we do that? We're called to live in the light. But why does Jesus at this moment, you know, in in Luke 11, after he gives the, uh, not the Luke 8 one, but where he talks about your eye is the lamp that provides light for your body. Why does Luke not give us a long teaching from Jesus, like unpacking this? He goes right into this criticizing the Pharisees and the other religious leaders. Like, it would have been nice if if we would have got a little section with Jesus saying, all right, I'm going to give you a little more details on what I mean. But I think Luke's saying, let me give you a little more details about what I mean. He's talking about people who seem like, to the outside, they have light, but inside of them is really dark. And he's trying to expose them so that they'll make their inside and their outside be the same. Let's continue in the passage with verse 37. As Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. And this wasn't in the original law of Moses. This was something that they had added. Um, I mean, there was parts of it, but this was like an additional thing that was added. Then the Lord said to him, you you Pharisees are so careful to clean out the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. You know, he goes on and he says, fools. I wonder what he really said. They're just trying to translate the Greek word, you know. Jesus gets angry, but he never sins in his anger. He gets anger at sin. He gets anger when people are hurting others and oppressing people. But he never sins in his anger, but he, he calls them fools. And he says, didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor and you'll be clean all over. So he's recognizing their flaws. He's not saying it's bad to wash your hands. He's saying, it's interesting that you, you were more concerned about if I wash my hands or not. Like you're, 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 you're trying to trap me. Before we move on, I want to talk about the Pharisees, because some of you might be like, I've I've said this word like 10 times, and you may not even know what it means. 
Who are the Pharisees? And who are the teachers of the law that also get referred to in this passage? So the Pharisees, they were prominent religious, they were prominent religious leaders of the time of, at the time of Jesus, whose main goal was to bring social and political change using a variety of methods and tactics, primarily using the Hebrew scriptures as the basis for their claims. So they were a group of kind of political and religious leaders who were trying to bring change to their society. And the other group that it mentions is the teacher of the law, or sometimes called the scribes. And these were another group, kind of like lawyers, maybe not directly like lawyers, but similar to maybe what we would call her, who try to like help the Pharisees and these other groups interpret the law and give people the demands that they need to, to do to be right with God. And all this isn't bad. Like, it's not bad to want to be holy. It's not bad to want to pursue God. It's bad when you twist it and you make it about what you want. So what's the context here? Right before this, uh, Jesus says that someone greater than Solomon, who's like the greatest king in Israel's history, the most wealth, the most power, and someone's greater than Jonah, who was a prophet. So Jesus says, I'm greater than your, the peak of your kingdom, and I'm also greater than your prophets, because I'm coming with a message. That's, that's what Jesus, that's what Luke tells us right before this. And then Jesus is so angry with these leaders. But this is in contrast to how kind Jesus is to the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and to other outcasts. So you'll notice that in Luke. Like Jesus is really kind to those who are seeking him, who are hurting. But he seems really harsh toward them. I'm going to read a, a quote from New Testament scholar Diane Chen about this section. I love this, so I had to put it in here. It says, in this section, Jesus addresses the importance of integrity. What is inside should match what is on the outside. When there is integrity, individuals and their neighbors benefit. Blinded by self-deception, hypocrites bring harm to everyone around them. I love that quote. Blinded by self-deception, hypocrites bring harm to everyone around them. Jesus isn't mad at their pursuit of God. He's mad at their hypocrisy. Diane Chen also says that, talking about this I verse, you know, where Jesus says the I, talks about the I. She says, the I is a recipient and processor of eternal light source, not the generator of light. The Pharisees wanted to be the generator of light, not reflect the source, not find the source of the light. They think they're the generators. They, they're not a reflection of the light. They're not receiving first from God. They only wanted the light and the parts of it that fit their needs and their agenda. And I get it. They hated the Romans. They wanted to conquer them. They wanted them out. And Jesus was okay with that. Many Pharisees turned to Jesus. Many of the teachers of the law turned to Jesus. But he's like, you guys have got it wrong. He wanted to show them that they wanted to receive the light on their own terms with their own eyes not with eyes they, they wanted to be the generator of light they wanted to control the narrative they didn't want to look to God and say God what are you showing me what are you teaching me and Jesus is saying do you really think the teachings of the law and the prophets what we would call the Old Testament that was their Bible 
would be okay with the way you treat people. That's what he's asking them. That you have these, you're worried about me washing my hands before a luxurious meal while you guys treat the poor and, the, and you, don't, you don't care about the spiritual health of others, but you're really, really worried about how I wash my hands at this luxurious meal. He's saying, don't you think the thrust of, of the law and the prophets is more about that? About how you treat people and what the kingdom looks like than about how I wash my hands? Jesus could have washed his hands. He intentionally did it to, to show an example. He goes on in verse 42. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. Yes, you should tithe. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. He goes on, I'm not, I'm, I'll put it up here, but he just talks about how that throughout Israel's history, the religious leaders and the people wanted to kill the prophets, and, the, and they wanted the king to, they wanted to do what they wanted to do and not obey God. And in verse 50, he says, as a result, we can jump ahead to verse 50. As a result, this generation will be held responsible for the murder of all God's prophets from the creation of the world, from the murder of Abel, who's kind of the first murder recorded in the Bible, to the murder of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, it will be certainly charged against this generation. And he's using Old Testament language. He's saying, you guys are killing the final prophet. That's what he's basically saying here. They can, all the prophets, and he uses Jonah as an example earlier, because you guys know the story about Jonah. You've seen Veggie Tales, right? <laughs> so if you haven't, it's good. It's good. Uh, but Jonah was a prophet of God, goes to Nineveh, tells Nineveh, which are Babylonian people, Assyrian people, like, you guys, you guys are bad. You need to turn to God. And he just assumed that they are the God of Israel, our God, the God of Abraham. And they were like, okay. And he was mad because he wanted them to not do that. You know, he wanted them to say, no, we're going to serve our own gods. And it's a fascinating account, the account of Jonah. And how God, he's, he, he wants to forgive. He wants to spread his grace to people. At the end of Jonah, it says God loved the people and the animals in the city. It's, it's God's grace. Extend, he wants to bless creation. He wants to bring his goodness everywhere. And he sends prophets to tell people that. Zechariah is actually a priest who, one of the kings, it's in 1 Chronicles 24, the account that Jesus is referring to, like the king, they, he tells them, this is what God requires of you, and they stone him to death. Like the pattern of killing a prophet and not wanting, and the prophets having to go into hiding happens throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus is just saying, come on guys, don't be like them. The light is here. Turn to the light. Don't be selfish in your interpretation. I'm, I'm exposing you. It's interesting how this passage ends. If we go to the next part, it says, um, it says, what sorrows? And then next verse, 53. It says, as Jesus was leaving, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees became hostile and tried to provoke him with many questions. They wanted to trap him into saying something they could use against him. So this is kind of alluding that everything he said they can't use against him. So obviously they must be doing that. It's very, a little, Luke's throwing in a little humor here. Like he's saying that all the stuff that Jesus just accused them of, 
they couldn't hold against him because there was some truth to that. They probably really were oppressing the poor, and he could probably show them a passage in Deuteronomy, the law of Moses, or a passage in Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, or Amos, that said that what they're doing doesn't line up with the scriptures. So they were trying to find some way to trick him. This pattern happens throughout Luke. In Luke 11, just before this, Jesus casts out a demon from a man. Casts out a demon, frees the guy, brings him freedom. And they're like, oh, he must be from Satan. Jesus tells the story about the Good Samaritan, and they're angry with him. In, in, in Luke 10, in Luke 8, I'm going back. The people were thankful that John the Baptist was there. The Pharisees wanted to kill him. And they said, and Jesus says this, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you said, He is a demon. The Son of Man, Jesus, came eating and drinking, and you said, He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So no matter what we do, if we come in this way, the pious way, because we don't fit your needs, you don't like us. If we come like John the Baptist, you condemn us. And if we come in this someone with grace and mercy, you condemn us. That's Luke 8. Luke 6, Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath, and they're mad. They're not praising God that someone was healed. They're mad that Jesus worked on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, can I do God's work on the Sabbath? Can't you just praise God that this person who was injured and hurt their whole lives, now has, isn't, can't. Luke 5, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, um, they asked him, you know, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? He's kind of like, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. Like, of course, you should be eating with them too. You should be bringing them to God. Come on, guys. That's what the thrust of, the, of all your scriptures say this. Be merciful to people. Bring people in. There are many ways that the gospel presents the error of the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law. And again, I want to reiterate that not all the Pharisees rejected Jesus. Many accepted him and accepted the prophetic message that he brought and they turned to God and they saw the light. So don't focus... So what can we learn from the Pharisees at this moment? Every time we hear about the Pharisees, there's a lot that we can learn from them. And sometimes I think Christians go too far and add extra, just like the Pharisees had extra teachings and extra things, they went too far. Sometimes Christians read something about the Pharisees and then create an extra teaching. So I, I just want to hone in on what, what can we learn in this moment from what they're doing? I'd say don't focus on small elements of God's truth and make that your truth that trumps everything else including the larger truths of the word of God. Basically, let me explain that. Basically, don't start with the truth that you want to be true. This is to us Christians. Don't start with the truth that you want to be true and then force the rest of the Bible to fit that teaching. Ask God for wisdom in the body. Look at church history. Let's do theology together to say, what's the thrust of the, of the scriptures on this topic? And, and let's think through this. But what the Pharisees did is they wanted something to be true. And they were like, I'm going to make the rest of the Bible fit this. And I'm going to force everyone into this. And I would argue that's not the thrust of the New Testament that we have. That's not the thrust of the Old Testament that they had. But together, the thrust is to build Christ's kingdom. And we do that in community. But sometimes we become Pharisees when we, we start with what we want to be true and we force God into it. So that's one thing we can learn from this. And the second one's very easy. I mean, you can just read the text and get it. What is Jesus saying? Don't be a hypocrite. 
Don't be a hypocrite. So the fourth truth, being light. Now notice all the other ones I said, what did I say? I said seeing the light, receiving the light, living in the light. But I didn't say being the light because Jesus is the light, right? I said being light. We reflect the light of Jesus. Let's keep reading in, into verse, chapter 12. Meanwhile, the crowds grew until thousands were milling around. I love how the New, test, the new Living thinks like milling around might be a, a word that we might use. I don't, do you guys ever use that word? Milling around, loitering, hooligans. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, they're milling around. You know, at the mall now, this is a side note, like teenagers can't hang out at the South Point Mall past a certain time. It's kind of... Like, my kids actually got stopped or whatever. They're like, we promise we're here for a reason. But they're, they're, all these people are just looking for Jesus. They're waiting for him. But Jesus talks to his disciples first, and he warns them. He says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. And he uses the word yeast of the Pharisees because in Jewish culture, at the Passover, they say, let's eat bread with no yeast because a little bit of yeast spreads and grows. So that's why Jesus uses this term. And he says, the yeast of the Pharisees is their hypocrisy. The time is coming when everything that is covered up will be revealed and all that is in secret will be made known to all. Whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light and whatever you have whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the housetops to hear. Again, this seems scary, but because we have Christ, it's okay. We can, we can begin to move toward confessing sin and exposing that we are broken, that we have darkness in us. And that's what being part of Christ's community is. It's, it's, it's saying, I don't have it all together, but I, I know who does. I know who I can turn to that will restore me and renew me. He goes on and, and he, he says this, Dear friends, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot do any more than after that. I tell you, but I tell you them whom to fear. Fear God who has the power to kill you and throw you into hell. Yes, He's the one to fear. This is a scary, this is a very encouraging passage and a very scary passage. And I want us to focus on it as a whole. What Jesus is saying is, don't worry about people. People are going to hurt you. People are, like, focus on yourself and, and trust in God and, and, and I'll take care of you. Many Christians... Hundreds of thousands of Christians have been martyred for their faith. Actually, right now, more Christians are being martyred at this present time than at any time in history. Not because things are worse now, just because there's more people in the world. You know, there's 7 billion plus people in the world. At the time of Christ, I think it was like 400 million people in the world. So there's just, there's just more people. But this, this passage has brought comfort to many people. I'm thankful we live in a free country where we don't have to worry about this persecution. But I think what we can learn from this is that we can just trust God. He goes on, and, and I want us to hone in on this next section. Jesus says this, what is the price of five sparrows, two copper coins? It's like just a small amount. Maybe they could sell it in the market. Yet God does not forget a single one of them. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. God cares about you. God cares about the birds. He cares about the animals. But he cares about you. And I think Jesus wants us to remember that. 
He wants us to remember that God cares about us. He's with us. The passage goes on to say, I tell you the truth. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, the Son of Man will also acknowledge in the presence of God's angels. But anyone who denies me here on earth will be denied by God's angels. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is a tough passage too. I've heard a million different opinions on this. Not a million, but probably a dozen. Sorry, hyperbole. Jesus uses hyperbole, so I'm allowed to too, right? It feels like a million. All I want to say to this, I, I mean, I hope she's okay with it, but literally this morning, someone walked in the doors of the church, and she said, I've been attending here visiting, um, but I can't come this morning. I've got to go work. But I have a question. If God isn't, if I don't feel like God's pursuing me, am I saved? And I was like, wow. I mean, literally, this is 15 minutes before the sermon. And I said... Yes, the fact that you're asking me this question right now means you want God. It's interesting, it says, anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. The best way to interpret this is, if you continually reject God over and over and over again, you've rejected God. God will never leave you, he'll never forsake you. Sometimes this word's called full apostasy. It's a theological term. It just means you completely denied and rejected God. Don't be that person. But when you have seasons of your life that are hard, that you don't feel like God's pursuing you, it's okay. Read the Psalms. Half, half the time in the Psalms, he's lamenting. The psalmist is lamenting. God, why are you not there? Why are you not pursuing me? What's going on? The darkness is dark. The light has broken through. Jesus is coming through, but he didn't, it's not fully light yet. So don't give up. God loves you. You can't lose your salvation. God is with you. You don't, God is pursuing you. The reason why you're here, the reason why God has you in this situation is because he loves you and he's called you and, and keep praying for those. At the end of James, it says, pray for those who are struggling. Pray for those who snatch them back. I, I can't go into the whole theology here, but I just want you to know that you can be fully confident of who you are in Christ. And the fact that you ask the questions means that you want God and he's pursuing you. And if you're struggling with this, talk to a friend, talk to one of us. We're, every one of you will struggle with this at some points of your faith journey. I promise you. But God will never leave us. He has called you. He is faithful. And you can be fully assured that you are his. The next, section, the next passage says, And when you are brought to trial in the synagogue before the rules and authorities, don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. I lived overseas and was an international student in a country that was closed to Christianity. It, the government had different opinions at different times, but they were open to a Christian group on campus that I was kind of meeting with some of the leaders. And then all of a sudden the next police group or whoever decided they wanted to close the Christian group. And they told them they all had to sign a paper saying that they wouldn't meet as Christians publicly. Or they'd lose their degree. They'd face all this persecution. So two of the leaders, I'll call them Wayne and Jennifer to protect their names, came to me. And Erica and some of the other folks. But, and they were like, what should we do? And I prayed. And all I could do is read them this passage. 
Don't worry about how to defend yourselves or what to say. The Holy Spirit will teach you at the time what needs to be said. And for them, it was very, very real. They could lose, imagine some of you are students, grad students, medical students. Imagine right now, tomorrow you go, Monday you go into the office and they're like, here, sign this piece of paper. If you don't say that you won't talk about Christianity or won't assemble with Christians, you're gonna, you can't, you're gonna lose your degree. You can't pursue this degree anymore. Imagine what you would do at that point. That's a very real reality for a lot of our brothers and sisters around the world. And all of them have to cling to this passage and say, what should I do? And you know what they did? They didn't sign it. So God, they're still, they, these guys created a house church. This was 20, 18, 19, yeah, 20 years ago. Maggie's 20. Yeah. They didn't do it. Um, God is still with them. They have good days. They have bad days. We're going to see them one day again. They got their degrees. God protected them. They got, many of them are teachers, professors. I don't know, they, but they could have also been thrown in jail. In North Korea, everyone who does this, straight to jail. And we've been praying for North Korea for 60, 70 years. And still, God has not intervened. We're going to keep praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters. I could say how this relates to us, how it relates to you who don't, no one's going to give you the paper tomorrow. Just trust God in all situations. Be salt and light wherever you go. Just love people. Be like Jesus. And let the Spirit speak through you. Before you talk, don't be the domineering person who has all the answers, but be a listener who loves Jesus and let Jesus reflect through you. I think that would be a modern application for this for us. Diane Chen, who I quoted earlier, she says this. She says, the warning against apostasy, that's losing, you know, this walking away from God for the long term, is immediately followed by the promise of divine help so that Jesus' disciples are not left to their own devices to combat the hostile forces of unbelief. Even if they are dragged before the powers that be, the Holy Spirit will give them the appropriate words for their defense. In Acts, which Luke also wrote Acts, it comes after this gospel, Many of the apostles are shown to face such situations, and their boldness and bearing witness surprises even the authorities. Only trust, not compromise, will help Jesus' disciples weather the storm. And I just want to say this. Don't reject God as you struggle. Reject the people hostile toward God. But you don't even have to reject the people. Focus on rejecting the spiritual forces at work that are making those people hostile toward God's truth. Paul says in Ephesians, I'll say that again. Don't reject God, reject the people hostile toward God, but particularly focus on the spiritual forces at work that are making those people hostile toward God's truth. In Ephesians 6, Paul says this, a final word, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the, all God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood, enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world and mighty powers in this dark world and against the evil spirits in the heavenly places. After this, he talks about putting on the armor, but then he, in verse 18, he says this, pray in the spirit at all times on every occasion. He's basically telling them to do what Jesus taught. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And pray for me also 
Ask God to give me the right words so that I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. I'm in chains now. Paul's literally in prison as he's writing this. Still preaching this message as God's ambassador. So he's preaching it to the people in prison, to the officers who are accusing him. So pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him. Paul knew that teaching of Jesus and takes it to heart. That teaching got the gospel to go to the whole world. And we're, we are beneficiaries of that teaching. All right, I'm gonna leave you with this. See the light. See Jesus. Whenever you're in trouble, just look to Jesus. And you're gonna do that not just, you're gonna sometimes just reading the Bible, sometimes it's singing songs. It's gonna be coming to church, being with the body. There's lots of ways to see Jesus. Receive the light. Live in the light. And then you can be the light. Then your whole life will be radiant, filled with the light of Jesus. You guys remember that song you sang as a kid? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. I'm not going to go to the next one, you know, put it under a bushel. No. (laughs) You know, no. Let's pray. God, you're good. You allow us to see you as the light, to receive your light. And even when your light is blasting on us and all our brokenness is exposed, you love us. And you're like, I am making you new. And you allow us to to live in the light, God. And I pray that we wouldn't trust you in that. And that we could be light, a radiant light to those around us. Thank you for your word and for this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.